is episode 135 of Off Script with Trish Close, intimate interviews with interesting people. Joining me today via Skype, Lisa Schroeder in the house, right here in Oregon, executive chef, owner of Mother's Bistro Bar. I feel like I'm in the midst of a famous person right now. <laughs> well, yes, I've had 15 minutes of fame, if that's what you're talking about. I mean, Mother's... Maybe half hour. <laughs> mother's is an institution. Thank God. Right, right, right. We're going to talk a lot about mothers, um, not only how it got its start, but really I'm super curious how you have maintained this incredibly beautiful restaurant, especially over the last year of challenges that uh, we all have faced. Um, I also want to mention, though, you're a mama, you're a grandma, you're a chef, a restaurateur, obviously, you're also an author, um, and you were also uh, recently at the Women in Wine Conference 2021. That's right. That's pretty awesome. I do want to talk about that conference a little later. Uh, but first, I always ask my guests, where are you from originally? Dying to know. Um, I was born in Philadelphia. I lived there for 17 years. And when I graduated high school, I moved to Jerusalem, Israel, actually. And I went to Hebrew University there. Okay. Uh, and reasoning for Jerusalem, was that your choice or parents' choice? Oh, no, no, no. I wanted to get as far from my parents as I could. <laughs> But uh, no, I actually thought I was going to live there forever. And uh, I met my first husband there. And uh, we became pregnant after three and a half years. And we were living in Israel and no family was coming for the birth. And I was going to be raising this child all alone. And I decided it was time to come back to America. Gotcha. Well, let's go back to uh, growing up. Jewish family. Yep. How, how Jewish is this family? How, how Jewish are we talking? Not at all. My, my parents were very uh, not into Judaism at all. It was really me that uh, took an interest because we had neighbors who were very religious and I would get invited to Sabbath meals every Friday night. And I just loved the traditions. And we moved to downtown Philly when I was 10 years old in a big apartment building. And the public schools there were pretty rough. I mean, I was being... Uh, threatened and challenged um, quite a bit. And I just really needed a way out of that uh, yeah. public school situation. And so my friends were going to um, a Hebrew high school called Akiba Hebrew Academy. And I asked my parents if I could go there and they agreed. So mm -hmm. I uh, schlepped out a half hour out of town and went to school and did my high school uh, there. Amazing. Um, let's talk about those Sabbath meals. Um, I have a few I have a few Jewish friends in my life, especially some Jewish mamas um, who I, I love dearly. Was food important in your family specifically? Absolutely. My mother had a restaurant before I was born. So she had a little place called The Little Spot in Philadelphia. It only had five seats at the counter and three booths, but she was wildly successful. She'd have people's food ready before they even got there at lunchtime, already bagged up. I never got to experience that because she sold it uh, when she met my father and became pregnant with me. Mm -hmm. But it's in my genes. My mother would have big parties with French decor and scallops on the half shell. And so I was raised with really, really good and tasty food. It's, it's in my blood. It is in your blood. I was just going to say that. Those meals, those Sabbath meals, what those look like? Super traditional? Well, well yeah. And I, my mother never made them, okay? They weren't traditional. I would go to the neighbor's house and basically get adopted. My mother would work with my dad on weekends, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturday nights. He had a beauty salon in downtown Philly. 
Philadelphia, that is. And uh, so I was kind of on my own with somebody watching me. So I would run over to the neighbor's house and get my traditions there. And yeah, they were typically, you know, roast chicken or um, in my later years, when we moved to downtown Philly, I adopted another Jewish family. Uh, the father was a survivor of the Holocaust. The, uh, he was from Poland. The mother was French. And so we got wonderful chicken dinners, but they were really a little more refined. And I got to get my Sabbath fix there. Man, you really picked up a lot of things at an early age. Well, I picked up, I kind of raised myself. Uh -huh. I figured out what it was that interested me and where I felt a sense of belonging and um, where I didn't get certain things at home, I made sure to procure them for myself. Do you think, did you, uh, you may have already answered this a little bit, it sounds like you really fell in love with Jewish traditions and maybe that's why you went to Jerusalem. I know you said you just kind of wanted to get out of, get out of Dodge, but. Well, I went to, uh, as I said, a Hebrew high school and so they really inculcated us mm -hmm. uh, at, to want to live in Israel. I mean, it wasn't just me wanting to get away from my parents, but even on Fridays, they would have a special speaker every week and we would hear stories of survivors from the Holocaust. We, a mother came with her tattooed number on her arm and told us about what she went through. And so we were educated in a way that encouraged us to go and settle the land because based on the history of um, the Jews, uh, the truth is we could be persecuted at any time and it's really great to have a place to run to should anything happen again because during World War II, there were, when Jews were trying to leave Nazi Germany, they had nowhere to go. Exactly. And I, you know, people may remember the story of Exodus. I mean, there were boats, there were boat people that were Jews, just like there were boat people that are Vietnamese. And so we've been refugees in the past and, uh, I was kind of wanting to go and settle the land so that it would be there for all of us in the future. Sure, and there's also a sense of community there, right? Because it's this idea that, that, that your people have been through something incredibly horrific, and then when you get out of that, it's this sense of community and family. Yes, but you know what? There's as much there's as much interfighting there as there is in any country. And, you know, there are Jews from South Africa and there are right. Jews from uh, Eastern Europe. And they, of course, clash and they have different cultures. And so, you know, there's prejudice and and problems everywhere. Everywhere. Um, Israel is no different. Yeah, for sure. So so you go to Jerusalem, you meet your first hubs. You have first child, and then you said you you decided I need to go back to the states. So we were living in a, in Israel for almost four years, and we he was about to get drafted into the Israeli army because we were there as temporary residents. Uh -huh. But after four years, you become permanent, and when you become permanent, you have to go in the army unless you're pregnant. So I was pregnant, but he was about to go in the army, and we had no family there to help me, and so that's when we decided to move back to America. He was a Moroccan Jew who had immigrated to Israel the same time I did. He had been living in France. He moved to Israel, but both of us moved back to America when I was in my eighth month. And uh, we decided to stay in, in America and I lived near my parents who were in Philly. We lived in New Jersey mm -hmm. and we settled here. But uh, honestly, it was an abusive relationship that I lived through for eight years of um, misogyny and abuse and after eight years finally was able to separate from him and uh, start another life. Wow, Lisa, that's that's yeah. huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I, I well, I can't even uh, imagine that, but uh, I know a lot from stories that I've done on women who are in abusive relationships, it, it, you feel trapped. You feel like there is no way out, especially when you have a child. Exactly. When you have a little kid, there's nowhere to go and you have no means of income because you're raising your child. So um, when she was two, I finally got a job and I started earning enough money to be able to say, okay, I can do this on my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's wild. So um, I read that you went into uh, marketing and catering. Was that, was that kind of like your first adventure in as far as careers go? Or was there something before that? Yeah, well, um, I had to earn a living. And so I was living in Port Washington, which is the home of Publishers Clearinghouse. <laughs> and I got a job doing telemarketing and then got promoted in that and became a supervisor. But I simultaneously grew to love food and cooking so much. My, As I said, my first husband was uh, Moroccan French. And so I was always trying to please him. So I'm there making coco vin, boeuf bourguignon, pate. And of course, it's never good enough for him, but it just spurred me to try even harder. So I learned a lot about cooking and I started to do catering on the side while I was developing my marketing career. So wow. I got a job at Publishers Clearinghouse, then moved on to a food service broker, all the while doing catering. And then ended up getting a job with Weight Watchers International, which was a wonderful experience. It was where I learned, earned my corporate stripes, learned about budgets and annual plans. And um, I remember the first time I had to do a marketing plan, I didn't even know what a marketing plan was. And I, here I was with this job. So I started, I went to the library, read every book on plans and and ended up being able to do it, but it was uh, quite a challenge at the beginning. Look at you. What was it about cooking that you love so much? I know, I know food, food was a love for you, but what was it specifically about cooking? God, as I said, I think it's in my blood. Mm -hmm. And I just never thought that cooking could be a career. I, I always thought it could be a side thing, but I never thought it could be a career. Hmm. And while I was working at Weight Watchers, I had a friend who said, you need to go check out the Culinary Institute of America. You just need to see what that is. And so I did. And I went up there and I was smitten. I could not believe that I could be in this amazing institution and spend every waking hour cooking and possibly come out with a career mm -hmm. as a chef mm -hmm. or a restaurant owner. And I had the idea for Mothers back in 1993 when I was still at Weight Watchers. I was working at my job for 13 hours a day, trying to figure out what I was gonna do for dinner for the family It's seven o'clock at night. And I'm, okay, I could do Mexican, I could do pizza, Chinese. But when I was thinking about where could I serve, where could I find mother food? Where can I find the kind of food that I would make if I had time? I realized that there was no place that had it, okay? You had diners in New York, but the mashed potatoes were water and potato flakes. You know, they weren't real mashed potatoes. So when I went up to visit the Culinary Institute, then I had this idea. I said, you know, I need to go there to get the credentials I need to be successful and to succeed at having a restaurant called Mother's. And that's what I set out to do. Amazing. Um, were you also hearing too, cooking and catering, um, hearing that the affirmation of people going, damn, Lisa, your food's good. Were you hearing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But again, I didn't believe in myself. Right. I was abused for the, my first eight years of marriage. I married for a second time and that husband was pretty domineering. 
and I put his career first. He was an artist, so we would go to Manhattan and try to sell his art. I would work all day, then drive to Manhattan, go around to art galleries, try to push his art, and I always put myself aside. I was never, what I wanted never really mattered. And then after I was with him for 10 years, uh, I had gotten, I, I knew that I was about to get laid off from Weight Watchers. I knew that my, my time was almost up. There was constant reorganizations. And so I applied to the Culinary Institute of America and I got accepted, but I still was employed. They hadn't laid me off yet. Time wasn't right. So I put off my um, start date for school by a few months. Hmm. Well, then an atom bomb hit. My, I got laid off from Weight Watchers. My husband begat an affair with my best friend, the one who told me about the Culinary Institute of America. Um, and I, uh, I basically had no choice but to start to take some action. And uh, that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You know, some people say, oh, my husband did this. And for me, it was, okay, thanks for that gift. You're really giving me the kick in the butt I need to go follow my passion. I've supported you over the last 10 years. I dealt with, supported my husband for a prior eight years before that. And now it's time for me, my dreams and my goals. Mm -hmm. And so it really uh, was the greatest thing that happened to me. And that was in 93, I started the Culinary Institute of America, which were the best 21 months of my life. Amazing, that lit a fire under your hiney. It did. It did. You know, you can put your needs and, and desires off, but so long in your life. And I'm just thankful that um, at 33, I finally decided to take care of me. Look at you. Are you ever too, when you look back, I do this sometimes where you're going through a rough patch and then you don't really, when you look back at it, you're like, holy, holy I went through a lot and a resilience, like the, the resilience that I didn't even know I had. Yeah, that, uh, oh, and what I didn't add is also my daughter went to go live with my ex. So I, I was the all, I was also putting my needs aside for her and she went to go live with her father. So there was just no reason why I shouldn't go pursue my dreams. And I mean, talk about, I, I have more baggage than Louis Vuitton. I mean, I have really been through a lot in my life. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I hear you there. Uh, when you went to Culinary Institute, was that, round peg, round hole, did you just fit perfectly there? I was so in my element. I volunteered for every organization. I was chief justice of the Judiciary Board, president of the Gourmet Society. I gave tours of the school. I got nominated by Food & Wine as one of the top student chefs in America and got to go to Aspen. I There was a Bocuse d'Or, this is this competition where I got to be a sous chef to a competing chef. I was so, so happy. I, I can't, words, I would literally cry tears of joy. I would leave school on a Friday night, drive down to Manhattan to see my daughter and to work in a restaurant because I needed to earn a living right. while simultaneously go to school. And I would literally cry tears of joy on my way down to Manhattan because I was so, so happy. And then when I graduated, um, at graduation, I was standing up at the podium and they gave me one award and, and then I got another award and then I got another award and finally they grabbed my arm. They said, Lisa, just don't leave the stage. We're oh. gonna, we have another award for you. So it was, um, you know, my classmates hated me because I was such a <laughs> love and was so involved. And of course, I'm an older student. So, right. you know, I'm with a lot of 19 year olds and they're like, oh, look at her. But I just loved what I was doing. I, I couldn't get enough. 
Oh, Lisa's getting another award. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of how it works. <laughs> Good for you. Um, when you look back at that time, is that one of the bright spots in your life? Oh, those were the best 21 months of my life. Aww. The best 21 months of my life. I can't think of a time where I had more joy to spend <sighs> every waking minute thinking, cooking, dreaming, eating the best food, talking about food. It was literally, I was in heaven. I bet you were. Was was the goal always to open a restaurant or did you just want to be in the culinary world? No, actually I had the idea for mothers right before I went to the Culinary Institute. So the whole time I'm there, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to apply it to mothers. I'm going to do this. I'm going to apply it to mothers. I, I, the whole while, and then even when I got out of cooking school, I got a job at Le Cirque, uh, a fancy restaurant in New York mm -hmm. City, and then another job at Les Panas another fancy French restaurant, Four Star. And we would like, for example, trim vegetables so that there would be the perfect square on the plate, but they would throw out the other part of the vegetable. And the whole while I'm there throwing away this food, I'm saying, I'm never gonna do this at my restaurant. This is a crime against the universe. You know, at my restaurant, <laughs> we're going to use every part of the vegetable and I'm not here just to feed the elite. I wanna feed as many people in my lifetime as possible. So. Yes, uh, everything I did for eight solid years was getting me ready to open the restaurant of my dreams. Everything I did in the back of my mind was mother's. Yeah, yeah. And before you eventually moved to Portland, you traveled a lot. Well, yeah, I knew, again, I knew things were going to happen. And I was working at a restaurant called Le Cirque. And they started to plan to move the restaurant, just like I actually recently moved mother's. And so I knew that I was going to get laid off again. So again, I look at these things as gifts and I started to plan a trip to Europe where I would work for free. It's called staging. Right. I would work in some four star restaurants in France and in Italy. So and Morocco was also a, a mm -hmm. destination where I could learn the things I would need to be successful when I opened up my restaurant. So in fact, Le Cirque closed. I believe it was October um, of 96. And I went to Europe and worked in Spain, Italy. I didn't work in Italy because they didn't want to have anybody work for free because they were afraid they were going to take jobs away from paid employees. But I traveled to Spain, Italy, France, and Morocco. Um, one of the greatest learnings was my first husband, as I said, was Moroccan, and I would cook a lot with my in-laws. They taught me a lot about tagines and couscous and bestia. And I thought, well, let me go to Morocco and see Moroccan food firsthand. That'll be exciting, and I'll learn a lot there. And what I learned when I when we arrived was that you don't find the food of a country in their restaurants. Moroccans don't go out to eat couscous in a restaurant. Hmm. The food of a country is in the homes, made with love by mothers. Mama! And so there I was going across the world to try to see Moroccan food firsthand when I had it in my hand all along with my in-laws. Hmm. And you just don't realize that, that the really the food of a country is in its homes. Yeah. It's not in the restaurants. And I, I so did read that. I, yeah, I did read that about you, that in all your travels, you really did discover that good home-cooked mama food happens at home. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. You go out to restaurants in Spain, you can't find a green vegetable to save your life. I mean, really. Everything is a potato or a, or a marisco, a, you know, seafood, but you hardly ever find 
green vegetables. And again, a lot of that stuff, the braised greens, the chard, all that is in the homes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Oh, love mommies, love them. So why Portland? <laughs> Well, I was, uh, I had just gotten back from Europe. Talk about another problem in my life. When I went to Europe, I uh, let somebody use my apartment and he was supposed to be paying the rent and uh, taking care of paying the bills. And when I was, I was supposed to do a stint in Paris, when all of a sudden a bill collector started calling. Oh no. And I discovered that he wasn't paying the bills. He was taking my, any money I got and cashing my checks. And uh, I had to come back to America early, and I came back to over $8,000 of additional debt to the debt I had incurred traveling around Europe. And I was, uh, yeah, so I had to get the police to get him out of my house, mm -hmm. and then I moved back in. And so here I am, I had just moved back to America. And a week after I got back, a friend of me called and said, hey, you know, my friend is going to be performing at a little gallery in Upper Manhattan. You should go meet him. She wanted to fix us up because he was living in New York. He was an artist, but I had already been married to an artist. So it was, you know, enough about me. What do you think about me? And I had enough of that. <laughs> and um, but also there was a mutual friend of theirs named Rob. And uh Rob and I started to hit it off and Rob and I are watching this performance and then we go out to the Lower East Side and eat a pierogi at a, a restaurant called Kiev and we just have this great time and Rob asked me out to see a play called Stomp and we had a wonderful night that night and basically I started a long distance relationship mm -hmm. with somebody who wasn't um, geographically desirable but he was definitely desirable as a human being. So. I always knew I would open up Mothers in a city other than New York because New York definitely doesn't need me. I didn't know what the city was. I met Rob. I came out here to Portland uh, one time. He flew me out and we, you know, were carrying on the relationship from afar and then near. And I realized, well, wait, Portland would be a perfect place to open up Mothers. And so that's uh, what I think things evolved. And I came out here for two weeks in 97 just to see, you know, could we really spend time together and I felt like I had nothing to lose. I just couldn't open up Mothers in New York City. And I felt that even if it didn't work out with Rob and I, I would stay in Portland and open Mothers here. And that's what happened and that's why I'm here. Yeah, and that's why you're, that's why you're here. Um, opening a restaurant sounds incredibly daunting, incredibly scary, right? Yeah, oh yeah, it's, uh, it is extremely daunting. There's nothing, it's that and birth with, by cesarean section without anesthesia are about oh, the same. God. That's how painful it can be to open up a restaurant. <laughs> 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 All right, root canal without an anesthetic also. Right, without... right, right. But I mean, there's so much that can go wrong, so much. Oh, absolutely. And you know, always with the restaurant, it's always the final hour where you say, oh, my God, how is this going to come together? How are we going to possibly get this done? And, you know, in the last minute, you're there put a, straightening up the chairs and wiping <laughs> off the tables so that the first guest can come in. But, um, you know, as I said, you know, Mother's was in the plan for eight years. Yeah. I did a business plan where I figured everything out. I had a lot of help. There was an organization of women that helped me put my business plan together. I got great advice from a good friend whose name is Mike Golub. He's now president of the Timbers. 
but he was kind of my guru where I would run numbers by him and he would always question me and really make sure that I knew what I was doing and was very helpful with that. And so when I turned the sign from closed to open, 90 people walked in the door and I never looked back. And, Whoa. Uh, yeah. People, you know, and people said, well, you were an overnight success. This was not an overnight success. This was eight years in the making, a lifetime in the making. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the fact that we were successful, I paid my dues. I Nothing came to me easy. And we opened Mothers on a shoestring. I got a loan from the SBA for $150,000 and then scraped up money from my husband who gave me some money and Mike who lent me a little money just to get over the first hump. So I opened Mothers with um, $225,000. No way. Yeah, nobody opens up a restaurant for that nowadays. You know, it's interesting you bring up, uh, you know, you were asking for help in the very beginning as you were starting to do this. I've learned just through this podcast asking certain people, hey, do you want to come on? Or, hey, can you can you give me some names of people who, who I could have? Like asking for help, there's very few people, I believe, who get to where they are without help. You have to ask for help sometimes. Absolutely. Now, I really didn't want a partner because, as some people have said, yep. if people were meant to have partners, God would have had one. Um, and I really wanted to do this on my own. Um, so my partner is my husband and mm -hmm. uh, life partner and partner in the business, although he's a silent partner. Thank God he lets me run the show. Uh, but I've learned in my old age to ask for advice, mm -hmm. to ask for help. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I always try to do everything on my own without, without help. And I'm real, I've learned over the years that sometimes you can't do everything by yourself. So, so true. Yes, absolutely. Uh, true. So true. So true, Lisa. When you opened Mothers, uh, were you, were you a, a rarity, meaning a female restaurant owner? Was that something that was rare in Portland at that time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think so. You know, there were a few like old wives tales. Uh, the former owner of B saws who then opened up Zell's Judy or Julie, I think Judy, I don't know her last name. There were a few small restaurants that were owned by women. Genoa was like a husband and wife team initially, Amelia Hart and her husband, Fred. And then it was kind of this co-managing co-owning thing, which included Kathy Wims. Um, but yeah, there weren't a lot of, of even in today in this business, there aren't a lot of women um, in the food service business, a lot of pastry chefs, but not a lot of women manning the uh, stoves. Right. Yeah, 100 percent. And you may have already answered this a little bit. What is it about mothers, you think? Why, why have you been successful all of these years? I say it's all about the love. It yeah. is totally about the love. I mean, why are we successful? I'm still there. I'm there every time we're open. I still now I'm in the I'm in the kitchen. I'm literally putting out the food that the people are eating. So it's not like I go home and eat bonbons and collect <laughs> the money. I am working hard for the money to this day. Mm. I yeah, yeah, I am there. And when there's a whole line of tickets, I go in the back and I push out the food and I'm one of the fastest expediters we have. And so I call the tickets, put out the food, look at every plate and make sure it's perfect before it goes out the door. And my staff 
sometimes they'll be pickier than me and they say, um, WWLD, what would Lisa do? You know, like before they put something out, they ask, what would I do? Would I let that go out? Um, because it has to be hot, perfect. People eat with their eyes. It has to smell good. Um, you know, I can smell a burnt soup a mile away. Sometimes <laughs> I'll, I'll taste the soup and they burn the bottom that's scorched. I'm like, okay, we got to throw it all out. So um, everything matters to me. Every French fry matters. Every drink, every smoothie, every plate, everything we put out matters. So I think that adds a lot to one's success. Yeah. You know, I'm not laissez-faire. I am there. Oh, I can tell you are not laissez-faire. <laughs> I can tell 100%. Um, and I know when I was at, the last time I was at Mother's, um, you know, you can see it. Lines, lines out the door. People are waiting happily happily waiting for a table. That's the difference, right? Um, but there's just something about, there is something about the restaurant, um, as you've mentioned, it's it's warm, first of all, aesthetically pleasing. And then the food just, I mean, sends it over the top. And for me, everything matters and the service matters. You yeah. know, a lot of restaurants today with COVID are pulling away from service. They're going to order at the counter, take a number, Wait until your number's called, get your food, bust your own table, pour your own water, set mm -hmm. your own table. I am never going to go there because that's not what hospitality is about. Even if you were at your mother's house, your mother's not going to say, oh, get your own food. Mother serves you. So the people who work for me have drunk my Kool-Aid. We are all on the same page. It is all about service. When you come to our host stand, there's not just somebody who saunters up to maybe say hello. We're, hey, hi, welcome. Yeah. And uh, we all rush around because I hate to see people having to wait for a table. So though, yes, people will wait an hour. My goal is, is that you don't have to wait a minute. You shouldn't wait a minute to be greeted. You shouldn't wait a minute to be seated. And I feel really bad that people have to wait. But that's why we all run around. We mm -hmm. run around to limit it as, as much as possible. And we really care. I mean, we care so much. Um, it's just in all of our blood and the people who work for me, it's in their blood as well. And that's why we work so well together. Yeah, I, yeah. I could I could see the, the people who don't have the same philosophy that you do. They don't last very long as your staff. They get voted off the island. <laughs> Good. Um, now, correct, help me out here. Did you open a second location or a second restaurant or both? Yeah, so after four years, I'm thinking, you know, gosh, I really love chicken parmesan and eggplant parm and veal dishes. You can't get them in Portland. And all of a sudden, I get a call from a real estate agent saying, you know, are you thinking about ever opening another restaurant? And I said, well, why? And oh, well, there's a space available four doors down from you. It used to be Elephant and Castle. Might you be interested? So I went to take a look at it and I'm thinking, oh, it was already a restaurant before. I should be able to just slap another restaurant in there and started to look into it and thinking it might be easy. But of course, nothing is easy. And, you know, thinking I could use their existing hoods only to find out when we're so far along that all the hoods have to be replaced. Um, and but basically I and then the um, there was a big ice storm. 2004, I think it was, mm -hmm. and I had about five days of not being able to go to work where I could write another business plan. And putting pen to paper, I said, you know, I think I could do another restaurant. 
yes, I'll do Mamma Mia Trattoria and I'll serve East Coast Italian food, the kind of food you can't get in Portland. You could get Tuscan and Shushi Fufu Italian, but there was no place to get red sauce, meatballs, Grandma Mary's, Grandma's Sunday gravy. Yeah. And homemade mozzarella. And so that's, I started and I set out to do that. And I did open up a second restaurant. And I have to say it was, it is, it was another, it's again, like another cesarean birth without anesthetic. It was so hard to do, even if I had done it before. And for six years we were in business, but um, never really profitable. And I couldn't understand why. You know, we're, we're selling all this food, people are coming in left and right. And I just decided uh, life is too short to be, I was running back and forth. I had no life of my own, trying to run two businesses. For a short while there, I even opened up a third because a friend convinced, I had, I had a friend who helped, who built furniture. He built furniture out of used pieces of furniture, repurposed. And he convinced me to take the space over next to uh, Mama Mia, so he would have a place to sell his furniture. And I thought, okay, well, this is the rent isn't that expensive. Sure, I'll take it over. You can sell your furniture. Well, but if we have furniture, we should probably have like coffee so people want to drink in there. Okay, and if we have coffee, it should probably be espresso. Okay, well, but if we have espresso, we should probably have some food there. Okay, well, if we have food there, what kind of, it's like if you give a mouse a cookie. And then if you get what kind of food there, what could we do that's different? So then we figuring out, oh, we should do our own homemade corned beef. Nobody in Portland has homemade corned beef. So, okay, well, what would you call a place that has really good food and good decor and sell stuff? Oh, balabusta. That is a Yiddish word for like the perfect housewife. So then I opened up this little thing called balabusta. Well, the guy who made the furniture didn't really want to work there. He just wanted me to fund uh-huh. him making furniture. And it became now three things to manage. So first I closed that, and that resulted in anger on his part and a dissolution of a friendship. And then I finally decided I had to, I looked at to Mamma Mia. It really wasn't profitable enough. I thought it would be, oh, cash cow, Italian food. Right. Well, what I can't, what I learned why I wasn't profitable is after six years in business, one day the OLCC came in and they ordered a drink and the bartender served the drink. Now this bartender had just given his notice. He was going to move down to Bend. The bartender served this person a drink and he would card anybody, but for whatever reason this time, he didn't card this person. Sure enough, it was a minor. The OLCC said, oh, you've just been stung. You just served a minor. Here are these fees. Here's that. But we need our money back because she paid cash for the drink. Well, what did we learn? He didn't ring in the he didn't ring in the drink because it was cash. And so when I realized a light bulb went off of my head, the reason why I hadn't been profitable all those years is because this bartender was pocketing all the cash sales that came in, and that's where the money was going. No. Yeah. Yeah, he would occasionally come in with a bottle of liquor, and I would think, he say, oh, yeah, I just need to augment. We just need this one bottle of Stoli. No, he poured from that bottle and kept the money, and that's why our our ratios didn't look bad, right? It didn't look like, oh, our liquor costs are high, because he would bring in those bottles and pour from those bottles and pocket the money. Lisa. Yeah. Oh, I've been through it. I have learned cameras. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> But that was again, but we sold the business. I sold it for what I put into it. 
so I didn't lose any money. And then I, and again, the most important lesson there is polish the apple. Focus on what you're really good at. I was, mothers was what it was always about. Mm -hmm. I got distracted. I let somebody else convince me to take on another space. No, polish the apple, focus on what matters. Make that the best it can be and you don't need anything else. Polish the apple. That's good. I wrote that down. That's good. I'm going to apply that to life. I mean it. That's absolutely. Man, woman, you have been through you have been through it and back and then I think back again. Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't stop there as you know. I do know. I I do know I do know sadly. Um let's talk a little bit about though this last year and a half, the pandemic. Um it, actually before before we get to that, can we talk about your daughter? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is 2016, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I was looking, I was looking up things about you, um, and I, I came across this article, and I just said that can't be the same Lisa. It can't be the same Lisa Schroeder. It is though. Uh, your daughter tragically, tragically died um, while saving her own son from falling off a ledge. They were on a hiking trip. They were on a hiking trip. They were supposed to go to Multnomah Falls, but they. The traffic was too heavy, so they went to Horsetail Falls. Right. And there are a lot of edges there. And on the way up, they looked at their sons, the twins. They were there with their all four children. She had, she has two older kids and then the twins, who at the time were just about to turn four. They were, it was May, their birthday's in June. And she said to them, we need to hold hands. We need to stay near each other. On the way up, that's what she said. This is what I've heard. Eyewitnesses have seen it. And then on the way down, um, they took the boys, they were carrying the boys on their shoulders or whatever, and they took the boys off their shoulders and let go of their hands. And one went close to the edge and the ground crumbled from under him. And that was Oliver. And he went down and she, with her motherly instinct, went to grab him and she went down as well. And he survived a 60 foot fall. Uh, but she sadly did not. She yeah. just hit too many things on the way down and had too many internal injuries. And so it was such a tragedy and all the kids were there and it was just horrible. It was just horrible. I, I can't even imagine. She literally died while, while, while saving her child. And now yes. there are these four beautiful children who don't have a mother. That's right. That's right. I also read in the article, you know, you were talking about her, but you said, the, these kids will these kids will know what it means to have a family essentially that yes they don't have their mother but we will rally and we will take care of these children and that's what we have done myself the other grandmother the dad have all been there to buoy them up and to be there for them i uh the older kids now one is 18 the other is 17 and they live at their dad's house the twins live with me five days a week i uh, during COVID, I was homeschooling them. They sleep here uh, Monday through Thursday night. We, um, I'm basically raising them, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to fill a hole that will never be filled. I will never purport to take the place of mom, but I can shower them with love and care so that the hole doesn't feel so gaping. Yeah. Was this your oldest? My only daughter. Your only daughter. Your only daughter. Okay. And you, I'm assuming you got a phone call. 
About yeah, we were eating at this uh, Thai restaurant that does uh, multi-course meals. I forget if it was Padi or something. And we were there coincidentally with our good friend, Mike Golub, the one who helped advise me on mothers. And we were, as here's the irony, we're heading to that restaurant and it's five o'clock and we're passing the gorgeous mountains, Mount Hood here and St. Helens there. And I probably seeing Rainier in the background, and I'm thanking God that I have a complete family. On the way there, I'm saying, oh, thank God, four healthy kids. My daughter and her man are doing well. Thank you, God. And then we sat and ate the meal, and as we're having the last bite of the dessert, I get a call from the other grandmother telling me that my daughter had just died. And I mean, of course, I ran out of the restaurant, but you know, in hindsight, when I was thank counting my blessings, that's when this was happening. And I just, life changes in a flash. It and really does. Yeah. Do you see her in her children? Oh, yeah. First of all, I mean, whenever I talk to my granddaughter, I, I have to stop myself by from saying Stephanie. Her name is Isabella, Bella, and I, I often, she looks and reminds me so much of her mother. Now she sounds like her mother. Uh, one of the twins looks exactly like her. And I look in his eyes and I see my daughter. And, you know, I'm taking care of her by taking care of them. I, I can hear her voice saying to me, take care of my kids. Like all she would care about in her death, I can just hear her say, take care of my kids. And so that's gives me a reason to live mm -hmm. and to be there for them and to take care of them for her. Yeah. Do you ever look back and think, look, looking at all the things that, has ha that have happened to you in this lifetime, it, do you sometimes just go like, why? Why me? Or? Well, I ask why, but things, the lesson there is my friend always would say, things happen for reasons and it's up to us to figure out why. You know, why did I get laid off from Weight Watchers? Why did my husband cheat on me? Okay, because that set me up for the next thing. Why did my daughter go live with her father? Well, to because I would never have gone to school while she was, you know, I would have waited mm -hmm. until she was done high school. Um, you know, I don't sit there and say why in a poor little me sense. I say why in a sense of what can I learn from this? How can I grow? And where are the lessons? Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, to be fair, a lot of people out there, if, if they have lived even half of the life that you have, would say, poor me, why me, look at me, be sad for me. And I think that's a, a fantastic perspective to have to look back and say, okay, yeah, this happened, but what am I going to learn from this? What am I going to do tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, that's the way I can keep on keeping on. Mm -hmm. um, my glass is always half full. And I don't sit there and wallow in my misery or cry mm -hmm. in my drink. Mm -hmm. I try to live this life as full as I can. We get just but one, as far as I know. And I'm going to live this one um, as well as I can. And I'm grateful. You know, people, I'm thankful as all the crap I've been through. And, and I'm not thankful, God, by, for the death of my daughter, but I'm thankful for whatever gifts I have mm -hmm. that offset the pain. And, and I'm thankful for whatever little things I have, not 
focusing on all the things I don't have. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. Gratitude and appreciation for the gifts I have been given. For sure, beautiful perspective. And let's talk about some of those challenges in the year, in the last year and a half or so, um, you know, restaurants across the country closed down, had to, forced to close down. Um, Mother's is open, but you, go ahead. No, no, you. Well, you, <laughs> no, no, you. Uh, but you guys, you, you guys have, you've been through the ringer of restaurants in general, but um, you specifically, you know, with, with closing down and then opening back up and it's limited and getting staff back. I mean, the challenges that have been facing restaurants is uh, co- completely unimaginable across the country. Um, what were some of the major challenges that you went through over the last year? Well, first of all, Mothers had been in the same location for 19 years. Yep. And the location was great in from a guest perspective, but was absolutely horrible from an employee perspective. Mm. Um, our, our storage was downstairs. Our office was on the second floor. The kitchen was Africa hot. It was tight. It was terrible. And in... Um, 2018, I was going to remodel, trying to make the kitchen a little better, but it was like putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> and I went to go look at another location just to be able to set us up for a, uh, a temporary location while we remodeled Mother's. And I went to look at this space that was at the Embassy Suites Hotel, and it was formerly the Portland Steak and Chop House and Portland Prime. Mm-hmm. And I walked in the space and I said, oh my goodness, why would I... renovate that when there's this three blocks away and so I really I threw everything up in the air I felt like I could get my guests to walk three blocks to the new location I had eight years left on my lease I didn't know how I was going to get out of my lease at mother's but it didn't matter because the circumstances the environment the space was so much more conducive to running a restaurant. And one thing I've always wanted is for mothers to live for perpetuity. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to die with me. I want my staff to run it or my kids, my grandkids to take it over. Mothers needs to live on because it's a great concept. It's great food and it deserves to carry on whether I'm there or not. Mm-hmm. And so I knew mothers could not thrive in the space that it was in. And I up and moved in Martin Luther King Day. We reopened on Mar- in 2019. And we had an amazing year. I mean, oh my gosh, we I can't believe how much business grew. I had no idea being in a hotel could also bring business. That was never the goal, more money. It was just a better circumstance. Mm-hmm. Well, then COVID hit, which smacked me upside the head and said, uh-huh, you think you're all that? Well, you're nothing, nothing. Yeah. And um, in March of 20, we, cl- we closed and I tried to do takeout and delivery for three months. I had already, I already got the, I was reading in the New York Times back in December that this was coming. I just knew and I started to get my ducks in a row for delivery and I, we were going to do our own delivery using our own staff. But I had 102 employees when COVID hit, 102. Wow. And only doing takeout and delivery, I could employ 12. What good does that do? What, how? How does that help anything? Mm -hmm. And add to that, we were losing money. Me trying to keep stellar employees and do delivery was literally costing us $20,000 a month, losing. So then the um, protest started in June, early June. My staff couldn't get over the bridges. How are we gonna get home? How are we gonna get to work? 
Nobody's coming downtown. So at that point, I threw up my arms and I said, you know what? I really tried. I gave it my all. We got we to gotta shut down. And I am not one to give up, as you just heard. Right. I'm a fighter. But at a certain point, I did surrender. And um, we were closed from June 3rd to June 6th for an entire year. And all that time, I have my ears to the ground and I'm listening. Okay, there's the restaurant act. There's this money that I could apply for. There's this help. You know, all the while, I'm just paying close attention to everything that's happening, getting as involved in as I can to help get support for the restaurant industry. And um, I applied for the Restaurant Revitalization Act mm-hmm. money. And But they were prioritizing women and BIPOC people first. And my husband and I went 50-50 at the restaurant about three years ago, whereas I used to have 51%. And making it 50-50 means I wasn't a woman-owned business and I could not be prioritized. And But the minute the application happened, like I was sitting at my computer, actually I got up at six in the morning and got the application, but it was I, it was the wrong time. They wasn't opening until nine o'clock our time, noon East uh-huh. Coast time. But the minute, the minute I could hit send on the button for the application, I was there. Well, then some nasty people in Texas decided to sue the government and said, you cannot prioritize women and BIPOC people. That is not fair and just. Well, then I benefited because then they went in the order of receipt. Right. On the application. Okay. So things happen for reasons, right? On yes. one hand, I'm beating myself up. I'm not women-owned business. But on the other hand, it ended up benefiting uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. And they went by order of receipt on the applications. And we were one of the first because I was sitting by my computer hitting send the minute I could. Go, Lisa, go. So, so June? that's what's saving us. Mm-hmm. So, so you opened, reopened in June then? We reopened in June. And thankfully, we had gotten the PP, uh, some PPP money, which we're going to have to pay back because it did not make any sense reopening the restaurant. When, when you first got the PPP money, you had to use all that money up within 23 weeks on payroll, mainly 60% payroll. We could not do that because we were not open. So that money is not grant money. That has to be paid back. Some of it will be grant money because we used it to pay our landlord and other bills. Um, and then the other PPP loan helped us, um, when we did reopen. So I had that to fall back on, um, for our reopening. So I'm grateful for the Mm -hmm. programs that really did come out and to help restaurants and restaurants who were astute enough and paying attention and did their applications, um, and have been good thus far. You know, I filed my taxes, I paid all my taxes, you know, I keep good books Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm honest. And so anybody who had all this, uh, the proof and everything to show for it, they got help uh, uh, with money. Right. Um, a lot of other places that weren't so lucky, iconic, iconic restaurants in Portland have closed. Do you think, do you think there's any hope or chance that they'll come back? A lot of, a lot, I feel Portland cannot take more than one of any one restaurant. It is a small town. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of restaurants that were opening an east side one and a west side one. and. I just felt that it was a house of cards. In some cases, a lot of restaurants borrow from Peter to pay Paul. A lot of restaurants live on the edge. They don't make enough money to cover their payroll and they live from week to week. 
And when they had to close, there wasn't that money to cover those expenses from one week to the next. Thankfully, we had been established for 20 years. I did not, I don't, I didn't take all the money out of the company. I left the money in the company so that we did have something to fall back on when the doors closed. But there are a lot of businesses mm -hmm. that couldn't do that. They were living equally paycheck to paycheck as their staff was living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And that's why we saw so many closures. I think there are a lot of places that mortgage to the hilt to be able to open multiple locations. And I just don't think Portland can support that. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you. I know it feels really good, and I'm sure for your staff too, that all all the hard work, the patience, um, it just has paid off. Sounds like, and I thank God. Cross my fingers. I mean, not, keep going. We're not making money hand over fist right now. I mean, it's we yeah. are limited seating, limited hours, and it's it's not the right time to open more. Yeah. But again, we've got some funds to help carry us till we as we rebuild. Well, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for you and for mothers because I know I, people need it. P honestly, people need it right now. You know, like we, we need a place like mothers when, when we've had a bad day. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I do want to wrap up, but I, I quickly want to talk about the Women in Wine Conference 2021. You were asked to be a part of it this year. Um, I, you know, I looked at the lineup of women at this conference. Holy cow. <laughs> I mean, what a group, what a group. And there's Lisa Schroeder in that list. Um, what was that like to be, to be there at the conference? It was an honor. It was really an honor to be included and to have a voice. And I'm so grateful for that gift that I can share my learnings and people might want to hear what I have to say and another blessing uh, for which to be grateful. Yeah, I think people have a lot to learn from you actually um, and, and hard work and, um, um, the word is, I'm losing the word right now, but just that push, that passion to just move forward every single day, um, it's admirable. Thank you very much. I think it's called resilience. There you go. I said it earlier. <laughs> Sometimes there's just too many words in your head, right? And you can't find the one that you want. I will say this, Lisa Schroeder, you are hilarious. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so funny. So funny. I, it's that East Coast humor that I love so much. Thank you. Um, well, let's wrap up a little bit. Um, I I just realized I probably, did I tell you about my final three? Did I, did I send you the final three questions? You did. I didn't give it much thought, but shoot. <laughs> I love the honesty. Okay. Uh, final three. Best advice you've ever been given? that to hire more people you don't have to pay their pay all in one one paycheck it's spread out over a year and um hiring more people allows you to do more things okay so don't try to do it all myself there you go there you go good lesson uh what's your happy place what does that look like um my happy place is by or near or in water any kind of water i'm a fire sign sagittarius so being near or in water definitely calms me down and um, helps me get through a lot of the stress I have. Uh, Sagittarius right here also, friend. <laughs> yeah. What's your, when's your birthday? December 5th. Okay. December 21st. I'm right on the cusp. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I knew it. I knew we were, I knew we were connected from the very beginning. Uh, in all things food and drink, what do you crave? Um, I really love a good croissant or pain au chocolat, the flaky, flaky pastry. And I really discovered the best croissant. There's this bakery 
um, called Jinju in North Portland, and that they make the best croissant I've ever eaten. So, um, yeah, I love a flaky, buttery croissant. Yum. And then as far as drink, nothing? Coffee, espresso, wine? Love coffee. I love coffee. I'm not a big uh, drinker, uh, but a good cup of joe, great espresso. That's the, that rocks my boat. <laughs> Man, there's that Philly coming out in your coffee. <laughs> my coffee. I love it. I love it. Okay, well, next time I go visit mothers, I'm just going to walk in and be like, Lisa! Can I do? Okay, I will. I will do that. I'll run out of the kitchen really fast, say hi, and then go back in the kitchen and cook for you. Right. I love it. You have been so much fun. If you are listening to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. You can watch it on my YouTube channel at uh, Offscript with Trish Gloss. One more time, Lisa Schroeder, executive chef, owner of Mother's Bistro Bar. Next time you find yourself in Portland, Oregon, go say hi. Go yell at her in the kitchen. Lisa, you've been so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.